Uh, if you'll turn to Revelation chapter 2, uh, we're starting at verse 18 this morning. One of the benefits of uh, going through the series that we have been here through these uh, seven letters to the seven churches is we get to see several different kinds of churches in the first century world. And um, as we have seen, even though they inhabit relatively the same culture and the same region, uh, each church faces uh, slightly different threats, and they bring slightly different strengths and weaknesses uh, to respond to those threats. And so I, I think it's actually a great way to get sort of a multifaceted glimpse of ourselves as we look through the lens of these churches in history, these churches that have come before us, uh, we kind of get to consider some questions. How are we like them? How are we different? What are some of the threats that we face that are like the ones they encountered? What are some new ones that we might encounter? And how are we doing as we react to those things? Uh, let me just give you a, a, a brief recap of some of the Letters to the churches we've already looked at, or some of the churches in particular. The first was Ephesus, if you remember. Ephesus was a church that stood really strong for the truth. They had resisted false teaching around them. They had resisted, resisted dangerous movements, particularly the Nicolaitans. But in all of this striving for the truth and all of this resisting to falsehood that was coming their way, it seems they had lost their affection for Christ. As the text says, they had lost the love they had at first. That was part of the, the burden of standing for truth. And then we looked at the church, uh, Smyrna. And this particular church was experiencing persecution and a lot of suffering. In fact, they were right on the brink of intense suffering to the point of death. And what we see here in this, in this book, is, or in this particular church, it's fascinating. There was no complaint against them. And yet, they were suffering. And so it seems that what we are meant to take from this particular church is that suffering is well within the realm of God's sovereignty, even for those with whom he's pleased. Then we looked at the church Pergamum, and we saw in them that they had a strong devotion to Christ, but they were weak in their public witness. Uh, they had really failed to stand up for the truth in the midst of their pluralistic and immoral culture. They had compromised, they had accommodated. And though they were devoted to Christ privately, they were corrected for being relatively absent in the world. And today we look at the church uh, Thyatira. Uh, it's our fourth of seven churches that we're looking at in these first three chapters of Revelation. And they're actually almost the opposite of the church in Ephesus. Thyatira had a mature and growing personal devotion for Christ, but they had really failed to stand up for truth in an uncompromising way. And they're actually a bit like the church uh, in Pergamum, uh, which we looked at recently, uh, in, the, in the way that they had sort of accommodated and compromised to the culture. Uh, but where Pergamum compromised and sort of caved to the pressures from outside of the church, Thyatira really compromised to pressures that came up from within the walls of the church, particularly the, uh, the false teaching of a self-proclaimed prophet referred to as Jezebel. And I feel like there should be some dramatic organ music after I say that name. It just seems fitting. 
If you look at your handout in your bulletin, right in that, that top box there, this is the thing I really want you to take away this morning. Spiritual threats don't always come from outside the church. They don't always come from the secular culture or pagan worship or an oppressive government. But some of the greatest threats to the church come from within the walls of the church. In fact, if you remember, the Apostle Paul uh, specifically warned against this in Acts chapter 20 when he met with the elders of the church in Ephesus, neighbors to Thyatira, uh, just before leaving, and he cautioned them. He said, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the truth of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And so here we see 30 years later in a a few cities down the road from Ephesus where Paul had sort of given this warning, we find there are wolves in the pen. And in Thyatira's case, it's a she-wolf named Jezebel. So let's look at our text, verse 18, Revelation 2, 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Tough letter. Uh, lots of uh, mysterious imagery in there and some pretty sharp remarks. Uh, let's start off by looking at the, the city of Thyatira itself so we kind of understand what's going on there and sort of what prompted this particular letter. Um, Thyatira was a really active business community uh, filled with manufacturing and merchants. And one of the things, there's not a lot we actually know about Thyatira, but one of the things that we do know that's sort of prominent or distinct about them is that there were a lot of trade guilds. Uh, So lots of trades and sort of close partnerships, almost think about modern-day unions, this kind of a thing. Uh, But nevertheless, there was a lot of merchants there, tanners, potters, metal workers, 
folks that dealt with wool and linen. Uh, it was a very industrious region. Uh, when I was in Turkey recently, uh, we visited a place in Cappadocia that sounded a lot like, um, it reminded me of Thyatira as I was studying it out this week. I thought, this sounds exactly like where we were. And I brought some pictures. So I've warned you about this before. So here's some pictures from Turkey. This is a, a pottery place that we went to where obviously they're just throwing a, um, actually this is on a kick wheel. This isn't even electric. So he's just kicking this thing with his foot to get this wheel to spin and then, and then throwing pottery right on top of it. And the pieces that they're making here, I mean, there's a range of expense, but some of the top end pieces were four, five, six, eight thousand dollars for some of the pottery that was coming out of here. And uh, so it was just really fun to watch uh, this fellow work. And once they did that and everything was um, uh, glazed and, and, or not glazed, but um, fired in the, the kiln and whatnot, then they would be hand painted. And you can see this artisan at work. And I don't know if you can tell from where you are, but if you maybe squint or look really closely, there is just this really fine pattern of an individual pinstripe with a brush all the way around that, uh, that bowl. And it looks like it's done by a machine. I mean, there is just no variation from stripe to stripe. But we sat there and watched this man do it. Just fascinating. So we saw some pottery being made. And then we went to a place where they were making rugs. This was very cool. This, here they're actually harvesting silk. So they harvest the silk, and then they have, uh, at least in the, the room that we were in, they had these two ladies who were sitting side by side. Here's a picture of one of them. And she is hand-tying this rug with silk. So that's just a very small piece um, right there. But again, this is a, a double-knotted feature, and so she'll do the double knot and then come back and cut it. And just keep doing this stitch by stitch by stitch through every row. You think knitting takes you a while. Can you imagine? And some of these rugs can go for tens of thousands of dollars, even hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the material and how intricate they are and how many, um, how many uh, knots there are. Uh, here's a picture of a finished one. Um, and that's only you know, maybe three feet by two feet. Uh, and this one was about $80,000, just to give you a sense. Pretty fascinating to watch them work and to sort of take all this in. And I would, I would tell you that these artisans are very crafty. Not just in their manufacturing, but also in their salesmanship. <laughs> because they got me to bite. They, they really did. I didn't buy a $100,000 rug, of course, but uh, I bought one that was expensive. And I tell you, it's really tricky how they do this. They take you around and show you their craft and what they're doing, and you're just mesmerized by it. And then they bring you into the sales room and they sit you down and they start producing all of these rugs. But before they show you them, they give you this little goblet of wine. <laughs> Apparently, this is all it takes to talk me into a Turkish rug. <laughs> I brought that home as an explanation to Amy. I bought the thing and then I texted Amy. I bought a rug, it was expensive. And I told her how much, and it was really good that there was a, you know, an ocean and like most of Europe in between us. She sent back some emojis that I hadn't seen before. Like, what's with the pistol and the crossbones there? What does that mean? Anyways, I bought one. And if you really want to see it afterwards, I'll show you. It's up in my office um, so we don't get blood on it at home. So, anyways. 
So Thyatira, really cool place, a place uh, that kind of had these sorts of crafts and, and um, manufacturing going on. It was also home to Lydia. Do you guys remember Lydia in the book of Acts? Uh, this is where she was from. Uh, she was a dealer in purple cloth. She came to know Christ uh, through Paul's preaching. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll read uh, to you about her life a little bit. This is in Acts uh, 16. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. And we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. And one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with, uh, or come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So there you can see both her uh, craftsmanship, right, and her salesmanship. If you think I'm a Christian, come stay with me. Well, how am I supposed to Deny that, you know. So they do. I think she was probably selling them a Turkish rug, actually. Uh, they were there. Uh, but just a really remarkable woman. She becomes sort of a um, supporter and patron to the church in Philippi. Uh, neat, neat woman. Uh, let's look at the Christology of our passage. Uh, we are reminded right at the beginning of the passage of the supremacy and the omniscience and the judgment of Christ. These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, This title here, Son of God, this is the only time that this particular title of Christ is used in the book of Revelation. Fascinating. And it was a really apropos title to use in this particular place uh, because he's really confronting sort of the religious practices of, of the city that he's writing to here. In, in uh, Thyatira, one of the sort of chief pagan gods that they worshipped was Apollos, or Apollo. And if you know anything uh, about sort of your Greek mythology, Apollo is the son of the pagan god Zeus. So when Jesus says, these are the words of the Son of God, he is addressing them specifically in an area where they have compromised in this particular region, and he is asserting his supremacy. He is asserting his omniscience, knowing what is happening in the area, and reminding them of coming coming judgment. Thyatira is reminded about the preeminence of Christ. He is not one of the gods. He is God the Son, the one and only Savior for sin, whose word is sure and is not to be taken lightly. And I think one of the things to appreciate about this is that Jesus is not silent about the sins of the day or the issues of the day. He goes right to them, confronting them and showing how they are an affront to him. Two features that are highlighted here about Jesus and about his nature, these blazing eyes, right, and burnished feet. And I hope this sounds familiar to you because these are the description of Christ that were given in chapter 1 of Revelation, This is what John sees when he is given the vision of the risen and glorified Lord. He sees these eyes that are like burning fire and these burnished feet. And actually, this isn't the first time we've run into this image in the scriptures too, because Daniel, the prophet Daniel, 600 years earlier, has a vision of the Lord and they are the same. 
And we are meant to see sort of the, the upshot from these, these particular traits that are highlighted in the glorified Christ are meant to show us that he sees the hearts and minds of mankind. The author of Hebrews says it this way, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I also think blazing fire and burnished feet uh, burnished metal, rather. Uh, these would have been a, a powerful and fitting symbol even for the tradesmen of Thyatira, right? The folks that light the kilns and hammer out the metal and forge uh, their, their crafts. Uh, this would have been especially fitting. They would, have, they would have appreciated this. And so Jesus uses language that's even tailored to his audience here. Um, he sees them. He knows them. He knows who are his. And he knows who are the wolves and who are his enemies. And he announces that he will come in judgment for them. Well, let's look at the commendation here. We can kind of move along. Uh, We are encouraged, I think, to keep a growing personal devotion. This is what Thyatira did well. The church in Thyatira did this very well. And I think as we read this, we're encouraged to do so. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. And so their devotion, as we see here, is not just a matter of uh, their heart's inner affections. This isn't a church that just has warm fuzzies for God. This is a church who is animated by their love for God. And it is growing and increasing. They're still growing in their personal devotion, and it drives their behavior. And for me personally, as I was kind of studying out the passage this week, this was the thing that really provoked me. I kind of had to sit back and ask myself the question, am I growing in my devotion for the Lord? If I'm honest with you, it is very tempting for me at times to just coast in my faith, to just coast in my devotion, to sort of run on autopilot or the inertia of past devotion and past discoveries. And so this really, this really pressed me. In fact, I have an old Bible. I didn't, actually, it's sitting right there on the chair, but I won't bring it up. But I have this Bible that I was given when I was 12 years old for Christmas. It is precious to me because of what it contains, but also because in this Bible, as I have read it since being a young boy, um, I've underlined in it as God has, have, has impressed things upon me in my personal devotion. And so I've been through that Bible multiple times, and on every page there is an underlining of something that I felt God impressed upon my heart. It, it is a story of my walk with Christ. But in a real tangible way, I can look at that and say, how long has it been since I put another line or circled something or put a note in the margin that said, thank you, Lord, for this? Am I growing in my devotion for Christ? Or am I coasting on what has happened in the past? And so I have to ask myself these questions. Does my heart yearn for the Lord the way it did when I was a young man? Am I still in love with Christ? Am I still hungry for his word, not just to prepare it for a Sunday morning sermon, but in order to arrange my life according to it, to know my God and to animate my behavior? Am I still in awe of God's grace and forgiveness for me, a sinner? Or has that just become 
a convenient truth that I'm relatively complacent with. Do I still hunger and thirst for God himself, not just his stuff? And so the commendation that's given to Thyatira here, really, it provokes me. That, not I, that I would not just love the Lord, but be growing in my love for the Lord. Not just love my neighbor, but be growing in my love for my neighbor. Not just be in service to the Lord, but growing in my service to the Lord. And so I, I, that's the way I have felt convicted this week as I've looked at this particular letter. Well, they were devoted, but they weren't perfect. Uh, they were leaving something undone. There was an elephant in the room. And so the complaint given against them is uh, basically they were tolerating a type of Jezebel, this Jezebel figure in their church. And by this caution here, we are, we are cautioned about tolerating false teaching and cultural compromise within the church. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, it seems to me that this Jezebel that is referred to here is an actual real person in Thyatira. Uh, I think most likely this is not her actual real name. Uh, rather, I think this is uh, more a title of reference because her actions in the church and in the community resemble a Jezebel, a type that has gone before her, okay? And uh, we see this in 1 Kings 16 uh, to 2 Kings 9. How many of you know the story of Jezebel? handful of you. I'm going to remind you, uh, this particular Jezebel figure, uh, she's a nasty lady. I feel okay saying that this morning. She's a nasty lady. Uh, she was married to, uh, I'm talking about the ancient one from, or, uh, from First and Second Kings here. She was married to Ahab, who was the king of Israel. She was a foreigner to Israel, which is always kind of warning language when we read that in the Old Testament. Not because this isn't a racial thing. This, this isn't uh, a xenophobic kind of a thing. It simply meant that foreigners didn't worship Yahweh. And so what at issue here is when we find foreigners in intermarriage is an issue of idolatry. And that's exactly what happened. She brought in the idols from a foreign country into Israel and uh, threatened their worship, exclusive worship of Yahweh. She ordered the wholesale slaughter of all of the prophets of Israel. She installed 950 prophets of Baal in Israel. Even the prophet Elijah, remember his successful stand sort of against the false prophets of Baal and how courageous he was? Elijah ran from her. Uh, Ahab, uh, her husband, who showed early signs of goodness, uh, the moniker about him in the text is this. Because of her influence in his life, he is, goes down as the king of Israel who did more to provoke God than all of the kings before him. She is known as the queen who brought down a nation. Her death in 2 Kings 9, I'll just encourage you to look it up today or whatever, but it is the stuff of horror movies. Basically, she is thrown down from a tower. Her body splatters blood everywhere. When they come out to get her body a little bit later, they only find her head, her hands, and her feet because the dogs had cleaned up the rest. So she's a nasty lady. Um, you ever notice that the name uh, Jezebel, nobody gives that name to their little baby girl? <laughs> 
It's never been high in the baby book of names, you know? And I just would say, if you ruin a name for all of human history, you know you're a bad guy, right? Or a bad girl. Um, nobody names their kid Adolf or Cain or Lucifer or any of these things. And nobody, nobody na- this is little baby Jezebel. You know, you don't, you don't run into that one, so... But this figure in Thyatira is called by this title specifically. And I think it's specifically because of her corrosive influence upon the church that matched her predecessor. Sexual immorality, food sacrifice to idols. And then there's this phrase here about these secret things of Satan. There's a lot of question about what in the world is that? And so I'll give this to you just open-handedly. I'm not sure about this. Scholars aren't sure about this. But one of the beliefs is that, as was kind of a theory that said, if we want to understand how Satan works, then we should involve ourselves in all of Satan's acts, and then we'll be informed in order to respond to them rightly. So that's a theory that's out there. I, I'm not sure about that, but that seems to make sense of the text and the way that Jesus addresses it sort of tongue-in-cheek. So let me just say this, too. Let me, let me be really clear about what wasn't the problem. It wasn't the problem that a woman was in leadership, We see that elsewhere in Scripture. We see Phoebe, we see Deborah, we see Huldah. It wasn't a problem that a woman did some teaching. We see Priscilla and Aquila instructing Apollos in the Word early on in his faith. Uh, We see it's not a problem that a woman prayed or even uh, uh, prophesied in public assembly. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11. The issue here is not that she was a woman. The issue is that as a woman in a position of leadership, she was prophesying falsely. It was the content of her message and the influence of her position. That was what the issue was. Specifically, a false prophet promoting spiritual compromise and licentious behavior, and to the church's shame, they had left it alone. They let it go. And so here we find the correction given to them, and it is, quite frankly, repent. And throughout the book of Revelation, or particularly these seven letters to the seven churches, we find that whenever there is something that uh, Christ gives by way of complaint, and we move on to the correction, we always see that it begins with repentance. It is the steady call and invitation of God to, when convicted by sin, repent. Repent. Uh, Let's look at verse 21 here. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Now, I think this passage introduces some really interesting questions about repentance that I would sort of invite you to be talking about with your family. The question particularly that it brings up in my mind is, is there a limited window of time for repentance and confession of sin? In each of the previous letters, we see this steady invitation for it. But here you get the sense that repentance might be a limited time offer. And if I'm honest with you, 
I think that may in fact be the case. I might be wrong about that, but I can think of a couple of examples in Scripture where this is in fact the case, where it seems that God has granted a window of time for repentance, but when it wasn't taken, did he shut the door? Pharaoh comes to mind. If you think of the Exodus, and the instruction came, let my people go. And we're told initially that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And that becomes the steady refrain after a few plagues. But then you sort of hit a point in time where the text changes and it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In fact, the text goes on to say that I will make you an example to everyone else. And so we see these plagues falling upon um, Pharaoh and, and all of the Egyptians. And it, and it doesn't seem like at a certain point in time it's to produce a change in heart, but rather an opportunity for God to illustrate his dominance over every religion. Ten plagues, one for each false deity within Egypt. It wasn't just about turning his heart. It was about showing the weak and anemic powers of these false gods against the true and the living God. And so it seems to me that God grants a window of repentance But there may be a time when repentance comes to a close. And my caution to you this morning is if in your life there is a certain level of conviction for some sin, some besetting sin, and you're just managing it, or you're living under the hope that later on I'll repent of this when it's more convenient, Later on, my heart will change, my circumstances will change, then I'll change my behavior. If you're waiting for a future point in time to do the repentance that the Holy Spirit is working on you right now, I would tell you, watch out. There is no guarantee that your heart will be willing to repent then, and I'm not so sure that God might not close the door upon the opportunity to do so. The clear teaching throughout Scripture, if I'm wrong about that, the clear teaching throughout Scripture is this. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And that is the clear, unquestionable teaching of the scripture on the issue. What we do see here is that her reluctance to repent produces a bed of suffering for her. And again, I don't think this this suffering that's being doled out for her is to produce repentance. I think it's for God to show himself superior to her and and the idolatry that she imposed upon the community here. Um, I think this is an important question here. We might, or or subject here, we might talk about this as a, a theology of suffering. Here's the thing. We can't paint all of human suffering with the same brush. Church, we have to be very nuanced about this. Here's what I mean by this. There is a, there is a kind of suffering that happens in some people's lives. Um, simply they're innocent and and it simply occurs because the world is full of sinners and sometimes sin in one person's life falls on another person there that happens so there is the suffering of the innocent i also think there is a suffering that is a result of just natural consequences right if you go on throughout your life lying regularly though you've been cautioned not to and told not to in the scriptures if you keep it up people will think you're a liar and won't trust you. And that will produce a certain kind of suffering in your life. There's also, I think, a suffering that is a a means of corrective discipline. We see in the book of Hebrews again that there are times when God disciplines those that he loves as sons. He brings about 
a kind of suffering or a, a discipline in order to change their behavior. But it also seems to me that there is a kind of suffering that is just quite frankly a divine judgment in a person's life for their unrepentant stance to him. And that happens as well. We see it with Ananias and Sapphira, King Saul, Absalom, Jezebel, and I think we see it here in this individual. Overall here, the message is, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Repentance is your invitation and your way out. And we find God ready to forgive those who turn to him in repentance. The encouragement at the end here, well, quite frankly, hold on, Christian. Life's hard. It's tough. Winter's coming. doesn't say that here, but it is. <laughs> hold on, Christian. If you persevere, you'll be pleased in the end. Verse 24. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does, the will, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A lot of things to look at here, but I'm just going to pick up one item, and that's this, uh, this title, Morning Star. I will give them the Morning Star. It sounds like something out of Tolkien, doesn't it? A little bit. I think it was Evening Star there. But what is this a reference to? Throughout the Scriptures, Morning Star has a reference to a number of different things. But in the book of Revelation, Morning Star refers to Christ himself. Christ himself. That's how that title is used here. Um, when I was a kid, we used to travel back to um, Michigan, uh, where my grandfather, well, all of my extended family was there. And my grandfather, um, Gerald Johns, was an avid sportsman and uh, sort of grew up himself in Michigan hunting. And uh, whenever we would go back there, and I'm a Southern California kid, don't hold it against me, but that's where, this, that's where my framework was coming from. So we would go back to Michigan and um, at the end of the hallway in their house, my grandfather had this, um, uh, what do you call it, a rifle case, rifle case. And that's where he would keep all of his hunting rifles. And I can remember as a young kid just like going back there and sort of pressing my face against this and sort of, what are these hunting rifles all about? What is this part of his life that, I don't know anything about this. We don't do this in California. You know, what is, what is this feature of his life? And uh, my grandfather bought me my first hunting rifle. He bought me a little 22, and, uh, and I still have it to this day. And he died uh, when, I was, when I was pretty young, about 12 or 13. And, um, and as I've grown up later on, uh, I have inherited all of his hunting rifles. Those are very meaningful to me. None of them are valuable. They're just tools. They're beat and mar you know, marred up. They've been used. Uh, but when I hold them, I have this sort of connection to my grandfather that is special. And I sort of imagine what his life was like with these and the hunts he would have gone on. And they're very special for me to have. I've taken them out in the field. He, one of them is a 30-30, which I've taken out a couple times. And that matters to me. But that doesn't matter to me nearly. I would much rather have the man himself in the field with me. I would rather go hunting with my grandfather. 
and, I, and I think we actually get a picture of this kind of thing where the morning star is a reference to Christ himself so that followers of Jesus who persevere to the end and are faithful to the end inherit Jesus himself, not his stuff. Having Jesus, being with Jesus, seeing his centrality in all the world the way it's meant to be will be wonderful. Things will be finally set to the right. They will be as they ought to be. We won't just be these celestial beings singing eternally, because I know for many of you that sounds like hell. We'll be with Jesus, with Jesus in the field of this life such as he's made it. We're shown here that he actually dignifies those that are his followers and that we rule and reign with him in the world. There is some aspect to which we are involved in even the destruction of evil and the establishment of all that's good and the setting up of shalom. There's this wonderful passage at the end of Revelation, which I read often because it's so comforting. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I would tell you this, that's a pretty good summary of the entire story of the Bible. That he will be our God, and we will be his people, and we will dwell with him in the way that things were meant to be. What was intended in Eden will be restored in the new Jerusalem. And that is the encouragement for those who persevere. So in closing, be devoted to the Lord and be growing in your devotion to the Lord. Promote the truth of God and confront falsehood because silence can be sin. When convicted, repent and quickly. Opportunity may expire. To those who are faithful and who suffer now, we will enjoy Christ himself and we will rule and reign with him someday. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be content with the devotion of our past. Father, don't let me or anyone here go into autopilot and coast or to taper in our love and service for you. God, would you fan to flame our heart's longing and love for you and may it animate our actions so that we would be your servants in this world now until such a time that you come back and finish what you started. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has something that before you they know is wrong, that they have not confessed or repented of, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would rightly convict them and move them to repent that they might find overwhelming grace and mercy from God who deals shrewdly with sin. Even as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the shrewdness with which you dealt with sin. And we take comfort in that, for we know we are now justified by faith before you because Christ died for sin once for all. So thank you for these truths. Lord, impress them upon our hearts. We love you, and we want to love you even more. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.